Everyone, welcome back. We have a great guest on today. We're going to be exploring the wonderful world of SaaS, none other than Justin Struckman. Justin, oh, oh shit, let me start it over. I said Justin. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, we can't get started like that. <laughs> All right. Hey bosses, real quick before we actually get started, I want to thank this week's show sponsor, diversityfund.com. They help you diversify your investments like the 1%. I'll tell you more about them during the break. Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, bosses. This is Johnny, and welcome to episode 127 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I am here in Tbilisi, Georgia. And Sam, where in the world are you now? Back in South Carolina, one of my favorite places in the old U.S. of A. Oh, I love it, man. Good to see you enjoying America. And I'll be joining you very soon for the Invest Like a Boss Summit in L.A. Looking forward to that. It will be hosted at Pier Street, and it's going to be great. I can't wait to be out there. And Johnny, a little side trip afterwards to Vegas for any of those who care to participate. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. So if you guys want to get more information on that, we set up an official page. It's investlikeaboss.com slash summit. You can get all the info there. Join the Facebook group as well, Boss Lounge, and we can have a discussion there. Answer any of your questions. Looking forward to that and looking forward to this episode, Johnny, to learn more about SaaS businesses, super hot category in online businesses, and how we're going to value them, how we can invest in them, and of course, how we can make that big lucrative exit in them. If anyone's never heard of SaaS, it means software as a service. It's a reoccurring business model. And it's one of the best types of online business because people sign up for a monthly fee. And what are some examples? I'm sure there are some things, some software as a service things that you personally use, right? Yeah, I think in a business to business sense, there's the most applications. So there's Adobe, for instance, where you're subscribing to all types of services for PDF editing and stuff like that. There's even Skype that we're using right now and, and a million different types of applications. Anyone that's that's doing a P&L and uh, looking through their expenses of their business each month will probably have a half dozen uh, subscriptions for their business and that's all software as a service. Yeah, so a couple examples from my side. Uh, I use, opti- I think kind of like Optimized Press is a theme for, for WordPress on kind of on the back end. Uh, another optimized monster. I think they're all called optimized for some reason, but that one allows kind of beautiful, easy pop-ups or email opt-in windows. So instead of using kind of the ugly ones that come standard, it just makes it easier. And then the actual email uh, service host that lets me send out emails to you guys once a week, whenever a new episode comes out, mm-hmm. that's software as a service. I mean, there's a ton of things that businesses use both offline and online that require a monthly subscription, but because we need it or it makes us more money, we kind of just sign up because it's kind of a no-brainer. And the funny thing is, is actually if you operate a software as a service business, the chances that you actually subscribe to lots of different software as, as a services is very, very high. So in one business I have, AWS, we have for our, our servers. We have Google Maps, uh, which pay like $1,000 a month just to use their, their Google Map application on our site. Uh, we have all types of, of cloud hostings for different images and, and things that we need to, to, um, uh, to host on clouds. So there's if you run a software as a service business, you're probably even more familiar with it just because you're paying for all these software as a services. 
Yeah. And if you guys are thinking, well, I don't run a business. I don't plan on starting a business. How is this episode going to benefit us? Well, I think it's really a good one to understand how evaluations go in. So whether you have a blog or a content site, an Amazon business, an e-commerce business, why and, and how things are valued the way they are. So you might get, you know, 27 times monthly profit versus, you know, four times you know, yearly revenue. And this kind of really breaks down exactly why people pay what they do for different different businesses and actually how to get the most out of it. Absolutely. So let's listen to Dustin. I'm happy to have him on the show. Stay tuned to after this episode, Johnny and I will talk about a couple of businesses that we've sold and how they were valued. Here's Dustin. Everyone, welcome back. We have a great guest on today. We're going to be exploring the wonderful world of SaaS, that's software as a service, with Dustin Struckman. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I heard you're on a rooftop somewhere. Is that your home office? Uh, and where are, you, where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm in West Seattle, so it's uh, right across the bridge from Seattle. I've lived in Seattle for 26 years, lived in basically every part of it. Now I'm in West Seattle, which is uh, really nice. Yeah, I got a rooftop deck with a view of the mountains, the beautiful sunsets in the evening. Yeah, it's great. Good stuff, man. Well, give us a, a brief background in how you got into software as a service, what initially piqued your interest and of course, leading you to, to where you're at today. Yeah, so SaaS businesses are, as everyone knows, hot right now. I happen to be um, a, a business broker. So our brokerage, one of our specialties is SaaS simply because that's what, what I was most interested in and because that's what the, the market is most interested in. My background, uh, how far to go back? Recent history, uh, I had started and sold a few of my own businesses, um, several of them being SaaS businesses. I had an e-commerce platform, I had a membership platform, and then I had a, a kind of a blog automation tool. And in each of these businesses I sold, um, started and sold. And then the last, I'd say four or five, I sold through this brokerage, Digital Acquisitions, which I'm now mm -hmm. a partner of. That's uh, through those transactions is how I got to know my my net, my current business partner. And um, we decided that uh, we worked well together and, and uh, bring me into the into the brokerage itself after I sold my last business. So that's that's how I kind of got into the industry. And uh, since I had a background, one of my previous businesses was a, a consulting uh, consulting business that I also did software development. So I probably developed a hundred different software platforms for mm. for clients over the course of five years. So I had a lot of background, a lot of kind of uh, knowledge and understanding of software and mm. and development tools, and and so it just made sense for me to focus on SaaS inside this brokerage as well. Great man, deep deep multi level history in, uh, in you know in software and SaaS of course, and I guess when I think of SaaS, maybe just because of how I was originally involved in it and have kind of tracked it over the last five or five or eight years, I'd say I always think of software as a service as B two B business to business, but I feel like that's a misconception. There are a lot of of course application and companies that are B two C. Uh, SaaS businesses. Is that correct? Or would you call B2C SaaS something different? No, the, uh, uh, there's two different kinds of SaaS. So yeah, B2B mm -hmm. and B2C. I think that the majority of businesses people are starting are, are B2B businesses. Most startups are, are going to be B2B. You know, B2C businesses are 
it seems like there's not as much uh, room for them in in Mm -hmm. the market. Uh, You know, we're talking about things like, I mean, technically Gmail is, is a B2C SaaS, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, like you don't see a lot of people thinking, Oh, I'm going to start out and and go compete with, with Google. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of the businesses we see in the market and a lot of businesses that are trading are B B2B businesses. So maybe that's, where that perception comes from mm. that SaaS means B2B. But yeah, it's, I think it's just because that's what most of the ones that are being started and sold are. And something like Skype, for instance, could be that could be a B2C SaaS. It is also B2B in a sense because they have just different products for businesses or consumers. But that would still be considered a SaaS business, right? Because you're actually acquiring their, or buying their software. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. And I guess it runs on a, a freemium model, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, got a bit of your background in SaaS. And I think what's important to a lot of the listeners would be, be you know, understanding how to value SaaS businesses. There's all, all types of categories of internet businesses. Sometimes you hear about these companies getting ridiculous multiplier valuations just on revenue. But it seems like in SaaS, it's a little bit more straightforward. And there's more of a kind of a, 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 a easily, almost like a manuscript for uh, valuing them. And I was wondering, maybe as a, just a starting point, I see businesses commonly uh, valued on either gross revenues or ARR in the industry. I was wondering if you could kind of decipher the two for the listeners. Yeah. And there, there's also, there, there tends to be a lot of a lot of misconceptions. So this is a, this is an interesting an interesting topic, and I think mm-hmm. I think worth exploring rather deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, nothing is simple, right? There's never there it, 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 as simple as even even SaaS businesses, which generally do have a pretty straightforward formula. Um, you know, nothing's ever nothing's ever as straightforward as it appears on the surface. Mm-hmm. But what happens is, and what you're talking about those those massive you know, uh, 10 times, 10 times revenue or 12 times revenue. The reason, the reason people think that that's what SaaS businesses go for is because that's what you hear about in the news or, you know, read about in, in articles. The, the reason those get publicized is because they're phenomenal. They're outliers. And so let's talk about how there's basically two different kinds of buyers and the ones that you hear about those those crazy multiples are the second kind of buyer, which is strategic buyers. Most buyers, however, are financial buyers. And kind of the difference between these two is financial buyers will buy a business based on the finance of finances of the business, which is either, like you said, top line gross revenue. Um, and in in a SaaS business, is, that's called ARR, which we can get back to in a second, or as a multiple of bottom line net profits, EBITDA or depending on the size of the business, SDE, seller discretionary income. So those are those are financial buyers. They'll make them they'll make an offer or value a business based on a multiple of some some form of the of the finances, whether it's top line or bottom line. So the other kind of buyer is a strategic buyer who the, the finances make up a component of the valuation, but they're not all of it. There's another reason or multiple other reasons that they're interested in the business. Either it is uh, you know, something that fits in with their, with their current product offering that they were planning to build or develop on their own, and it's, it makes more sense for them to buy it instead of building it. And that's kind of the buy versus build strategic buyer. Sometimes it's, um, you know, they've got a, a customer base that 
that they can market this to immediately. And, you know, so it's worth more to them than it would be to a financial buyer because they can instantly make a return on that investment. Or maybe they're building a portfolio of businesses and, you know, they, they're trying to increase the size of that of that portfolio overall. So those are the strategic buyers. And those are the ones that you hear about that you get those kind of crazy crazy multiples hmm. mostly and this is this is why it's not as simple as as you would think it is so there are there are formulas that are based on profit or on gross revenues so just real quick gross revenues versus arr it's basically the same thing in a saas business arr stands for annual recurring revenue and the, the distinction is that it's recurring in most businesses you have to go out and create new income every year Whereas in a SaaS business, you have subscriptions and your customers are paying either on a monthly or an annual basis on a recurring, on a recurring subscription. So that makes SaaS businesses very desirable, which is why, um, you know, PE firms and, and private investors and uh, even family offices are looking to acquire SaaS businesses because the revenue is more predictable, at least in theory, due mm-hmm. to the recurring nature of, of, the, of the billing. So as far as valuations go, if we're looking at um, if we're looking at multiples of ARR, they in general are anywhere between between one to three times, one to four times ARR. And the the range, so this is where this is why it's never quite as simple. So the range depends on the growth of the business, whether the business also has profit. Um, sometimes SaaS businesses have no profit because they're putting all of their all of their money back into growth, and so those businesses will always only trade on a multiple of ARR because there is no profit. And depending on how fast it's growing, that multiple can change. Depending on the size of the business, that multiple can change. There are kind of breakpoints. You know, businesses at a million dollars in ARR are probably not going to trade for more than three times ARR. A business at 5 million ARR might trade for four times. A business at 10 times ARR, I mean $10 million, might trade for five or six times ARR. So mm-hmm. the 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 multiple changes as the size of the business changes. And this is there's a parallel to that in when you're doing valuations based on on EBITDA. So if the you know net profits, and I'll use those those terms interchangeably just in case people aren't comfortable with um, you know, we're knowing what EBITDA means. Mm-hmm. So the if the you know net profits are say two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and the business is fairly stable and or growing a little bit, they you might be able to get uh, three and a half to a four times on profit. If it's an older SaaS business and it's declining or you know flat, and you know you're two two hundred fifty thousand a year in in net profits, you you know might get a, a two two and a half or three times on on EBITDA. So, um, and then again, as the business gets bigger, those multiples get bigger. So a business that's doing a million dollars a year in, in net profits is, is probably going to get a five times, maybe even, maybe even a six times. If it's doing 5 million, then you might get an eight X on, on EBITDA. So there, there are formulas, but it's not as simple as just if, if you're making this, it's that there. Cause again, the, the size, the growth, the the moat as as it, we like to say in the industry you know which is how hard is it for somebody to come in and take your business away from you you know um, the and even the particulars of the business you know how how integral is the is the founder 
in the ongoing success of the company. So all of those things factor into it. So there's not just a simple formula, but it mm-hmm. is, you know, it, it does follow guidelines and SaaS businesses do follow guidelines. So if you, also to, a couple of assets that I would think of when looking at these, either as a, a financial buyer or a strategic buyer would be kind of the technology that's there and also maybe the organic traffic like the SEO. I mean, when how, how do you build in the value of the tech into a SaaS business? Because you, you could yeah. easily put, you know, put in a half million dollars to build out a platform before you ever generated your, your first dollar. Yeah, so that's that's a great question and um, a, a common misconception and something that I often have to kind of coach sellers through is that the the tech it essentially comes along for the ride unless it's you know some super proprietary cutting edge AI technology that you know venture capitalists and um, you know other other types of speculative investors are willing to put money into the idea then the tech just comes along for the ride and that's why that's why SaaS businesses get a higher multiple for example if you have a, an FBA business that's a hundred percent hundred percent fulfilled by Amazon and you're you're making five hundred thousand dollars a year in net profit you probably get a two two and a half times multiple on that. Whereas if you have a SaaS business making 500,000 a year in net profit, you're going to get a 4X. So you get a higher multiple on, on a SaaS business than you do on other types of businesses because the tech is, it, it's just assumed to be there. Uh, same it. thing with an email list, with a social media account. You know, like those things are not individual assets that get valued on top of the, the value of the business. Mm-hmm. Those all come along for the ride. And that's, yeah. And, and so, yeah. So the a SaaS business will get a higher multiple. One, because of the subscri- subscription, you know, the recurring revenue. And two, because there is tech involved. I could see just about every founder or any owner of a SaaS business having that discussion with you talking about how yeah, valuable yeah. the tech is and how to yes, value I, that I, in. And it's like, bro- <laughs> I've had probably. that discussion many, many times. <laughs> and That's I understand, pretty- you know, like I, I've, I've started, I've started many software businesses of my own, you know, like I, I've, I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit I've had several ventures that I've put up to a hundred thousand dollars into, and then didn't end up being able to make any money with them. And mm-hmm. unfortunately those businesses are worth nothing. So, right. you know, like that's just the tech that, yeah, tech unfortunately is, is not valued on its own. Like I said, unless, unless you've got something really, really special, really cutting edge. And, you know, like in this day and age right now, it's, you know, AI and, you know, potentially maybe like um, big data or something like that. But mm-hmm. most of the time, you know, if it's just a, if it's just a, a, a software platform that does something great for your customers and provides value and service, then that that just is built into the formula. Yeah, something definitely for founders to consider when they're they're making their investment to build whatever it is they're building. That you know, it it's going to have to generate revenue. You can't just build something for a few hundred thousand dollars yes. and, and expect to, to to turn it for two or three x. Hey bosses, this week's sponsor is Diversity Fund, an alternative investment platform providing the same investment opportunities as the wealthy. Their goal is to help close the wealth gap and enable all Americans to achieve financial freedom by opening up the world of alternative investments and let you invest and build wealth like the 1%. Their current investing offering is the DF Growth REIT, a portfolio of commercial real estate 
focusing on value-add multifamily apartment buildings. What makes Diversity Fund different is that they are vertically integrated, which means that they own and operate all the assets. That allows them to remove the middlemen, not charge any platform or asset management fees. Best of all, they're invested alongside with you, so you know their interests are aligned with yours. Even then, they pay their investors before they pay themselves. Go to diversityfund.com to learn more or get started for as low as $500. Use promo code BOSS20 to get a $20 Amazon gift card after making your first investment. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-Y fund.com. I wanted to touch on some, a point that you brought up earlier, which was comparing some popular categories of, of businesses yeah. on the internet. And that was, you know, there's SaaS, there's e-commerce, maybe slash marketplaces, blogs and content sites, you know, and then you made the case that SaaS will typically get the highest valuations of, of any of those uh, categories. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and generally content sites, which could be a blog, or you know, uh, video, any kind of content site is is going to get usually the lowest multiple, around somewhere between two to two and a half times. And these are on profit. So SaaS is the only business that is generally generally the only business that's valued on a multiple of top line. All the other business types are valued on a multiple of, of profits. So okay. content sites would kind of get the lowest multiple than e-commerce. Well, then if it's pure FBA, then that sits in between kind of content and e-commerce. And if it's a blended e-commerce where at least, you know, 50, 60, 70% of it is not on Amazon, then that'll get uh, a multiple above a straight FBA business. And then SaaS will get the highest multiple. Cool, Dustin. So one thing I would just wanted to also clear up was back on the ARR, and I guess people you can also trim that down to monthly to be MRR. So is this specifically to subscriptions? Because one thing that I sometimes get confused is when thinking about, say, marketplace sales, where as long as your traffic holds up, you you have pretty consistent sales, but that wouldn't be considered MRR, ARR, or re- recurring revenue. For Correct. instance, that would be more sales revenue, isn't that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. MRR and ARR apply specifically and only to recurring subscription revenue. And so even in a SaaS business, it might have a, a top line or gross gross revenue number that's different from their ARR number because some SaaSs, especially as you get bigger and or uh, start to cater to enterprise clients, will have uh, additional services that are not recurring, you know, like setup, you know, setup fees or, um, integration fees or you know professional services that go along with with the SaaS, and so those mm-hmm. would be added um to the arr to come up with the total gross revenue got it oh this now this is actually a stupid question but it just popped <laughs> up in my head so i might as well ask it is it recurring or reoccurring with an o oh that's funny i i don't i don't i don't make a distinction i i i, I, I think you can do both recurring, but <laughs> okay. yeah i think i think the words yeah uh, Google would know the answer to that. Okay, cool. I, I use both sort of interchangeably, yeah. so we'll just yeah. we'll leave it open and we'll they, confirm it in the show notes. <laughs> okay, Good. I'm gonna so, I'm gonna vote for recurring though. Recurring, it's cleaner, it's less syllables, right? Yeah. So that's kind of valuing side of of the business. So that I guess this is something that there's sort of a formula for, although there's as you said, there's always other types of elements, 
search engine optimization, tech, all types of you know founders, human capital, things of this nature that can, of course, be built into the sales price. And then as you were talking about the valuation well, of companies as they grow... I- can I cut you off for one second? Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. would I would actually refine that um, description. Things like things like SEO, uh, things like that don't necessarily increase or decrease the value of the business. What they tend to do though is increase or decrease the sellability of the business because they can be looked at as either you know downsides or opportunities. Mm-hmm. So it depends. It kind of depends on the buyer. And and you know how you how you frame it, but the the value of the business, yeah, things like that. I, I would say more go towards the overall sellability of the business, versus versus affecting the valuation. That's very interesting. So it, it almost if you if you're doing well in a lot of those categories, you can almost increase your your chances of liquidity event. Well, you know, it's funny because that that sometimes could be the case, but it also sometimes could be the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. So if you if you already have all your SEO dialed in, all your your paid advertising optimized and dialed in, then you know a buyer might look at it and see, well, you know, I, I don't see I don't see a lot of opportunity for me to come in here and improve the business. Uh-huh. A lot of times, what a buyer is doing when they look at a business, they'll pay a four times you know, four times multiple because they know they can go out and add their expertise. So maybe you've, you've done well at your content strategy and so you've got good SEO, but you don't know how to do paid advertising. Well, this particular buyer looks at your business and they're a rock star at paid advertising. So they'll pay you a four times because they know they can double the revenue by adding paid ads into the mix and they'll get their money back in two years instead of four years. So sometimes like having a deficiency in one of those categories <laughs> to to some buyers is a benefit because they see it as an opportunity for growth. Wow. So it, it's a funny world. Yeah, the, the it's it's yeah. There's there's a lot there's a lot at play, and it's never it's never as straightforward as as you would think it is. Gosh, very interesting. Very very interesting. Yeah. Now as 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 revenues go up, let's say ARR, it, it yeah. sounded like valuations in SaaS would also go up or the multiples uh would Multiple. go up is yeah. It, it, yeah why is that yeah um a couple reasons one is because there's more perceived stability in a bigger business so if you know if you're making 200 let's say just i should use some numbers like you say you have two hundred fifty thousand a year in arr that you know that's a, a fairly small business and may or may not be here next year or the year after if you have 10 million in arr then the presumption is that because that most likely is is a, a, a uh, you know a factor more of 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 customers, not just that you're charging more on a monthly basis, right? The that with those that many more customers, there's more stability in in the business, so it's worth more uh, just by virtue of the fact that we know for sure it's going to be around longer. The other reason is once you get up to a certain level. It starts to be institutional buyers who are looking looking at the business versus individuals or or PE firms, and they they just have a different formula because my understanding is that it's more about um, growth and acquisition for them with more revenue adds to their their over the overall growth of their company, which then mm-hmm. um, you know appeases the the stakeholders and or and or stockholders. And they're less concerned with how much they paid for that asset as they are for how it affects the perception of growth of the business as a whole. Got it. So a couple of things come into play there. 
What does a typical buyer in your network look like? You know, people come to you, presumably they, they're looking to, to get into the business in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is, is there a typical profile of, of buyers in your network? Yeah, there's there's no typical buyer. I would say there are several different kinds of, of categories of buyers. It ranges everything from someone who's cashed out their 401k and wants to take their you know destiny into their own hands and, and start their own business mm -hmm. to uh, people with generational wealth who started a, a family office and they're looking to make a number of acquisitions. Um, we have PE firms that range in size from you know, having 25 million under management to literally some of our buyers have $2 billion under management. So there's, there's a big range of, yeah. of, uh, yeah, buyers in the market and they're all looking for different things for different reasons. It, it, it always but, amazes me when, when people are acquiring say a SaaS business, because I feel like it is such a specialized skill to build that business, understand it, understand your customers. And there's so many moving pieces that it, to me, it feels like, okay, if a PE company or family office were to come in and buy it without the, the people that build it, I feel like there's just no way they could take it over. But I guess, I guess they have specialized people in a family office or PE companies that obviously have a proven record of, of buying these things and growing them to, uh, to be bigger enterprises. Yep. A lot of times they'll have, they'll have an operator network or they'll have in-house, in-house, um, resources to take over the business. Sometimes what's a, a you know, popular thing for those kinds of buyers is to only buy 75% of the business mm -hmm. or even, you know, 55% of the business and keep the founders in place. And so the, there are a number of ways that, that that's handled, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes, you know, the, the founder needs to stay involved for six months to a year or even two years in order to ensure the ongoing success of the business. Mm -hmm. I think that the the more complicated case is the smaller SaaS business where the you know the founder is doing the dev work and the support and you know so someone comes in to buy it and they're basically they need to have all those skills uh, or they're you know or the business isn't going to isn't going to be able to survive so that's something I think that people should really keep in mind is how you know if you're buying a smaller business or if it's your first your first business you need to make sure that you have the, the the skills and the resources either in your own personal skill set or mm -hmm. you know in a team that can take on all of the jobs that the current founder is you know is is currently fulfilling mm -hmm. and generally a business valued under two million dollars is is going to have a big component that is being that's being run by the founder what what does a typical deal structure look like when when transacting? I, I would imagine there's a, a a fairly large earnout component, or at least proposed to have a, a fairly large earnout component in these deals. Yeah, it, it depends on the deal. Um, certainly, buyers like more uh, of of a structured deal, and and sellers like more cash. So it's always a a dance to satisfy everyone's everyone's needs, mm -hmm. and you know it's perfectly reasonable for a buyer to want to de-risk their investment to a certain extent, and it's perfectly reasonable for a seller to want to move on to their next project. Otherwise, why are they you know why are they selling it? Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, there's there's a, a a balance that needs to be that needs to be struck between those two somewhat competing interests, you know. But generally. Uh, we find that somewhere around uh, 80 20 is is a good balance unless unless the buyer um, and the seller 
want to work together. You know, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's it's a case where the seller still sees a ton of opportunity in the business, but you know, wants a partner or needs a capital infusion to achieve some of these goals. Or a buyer comes along and they've got such a great, you know, plan for growth that the seller is happy to come along for the ride with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, other than those cases, generally you know, 80% cash at closing and some sort of 20% structure is is a reasonable balance between between what you know buyer and seller both want. And, and 20%, any guidance on that uh, for the earn out? Is that typically over like a, a 12 month term and based on on just revenues, either hitting targets or, or being maintained? Yeah, I mean, it could be it could be a, a seller note. It's just a straight, simple seller note. It could be an earnout. Um, it, it could be it could be an earnout with bonuses if you know if targets are exceeded. So that that structure uh, a lot has to do with with the business itself, and then what the buyer and seller are both comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of things that a, a broker can can help to massage and help to communicate both sides back and forth and and get everybody on the same page. All right. Dustin, give us a, a bird's eye view into digital acquisitions. There's uh, buyers and sellers, presumably. What w- What's the experience like for either uh, buyers or sellers? So we, we take, we take a, a philosophy that um, we want to treat everyone the way that we'd want to be treated for two reasons. One, we want to build long-term relationships. So we don't want to sell one business to a buyer. We want to have, have them have a great experience and come back and buy their second and third and fourth and fifth business from us as well. So we always strike a balance between representing our, our sellers and providing good quality service to our buyers. And one of the ways that we do that is we we only take on listings that we what we say internally is is a business that we would like to own ourselves if we don't feel that way about the business and we don't feel passionate about it and feel like yeah this is something i would like to own then we're not going to take it on as a listing so that's that's one of the ways that we ensure that we're providing a good quality experience to our buyers and you know the other way is just being attentive and and making sure that we have systems and processes in place to support them through this this process, which is a big, you know, it's a big undertaking for mm-hmm. most people, even, even if it's not their first, even if it's not their first acquisition, it's still, you know, it, it's, it's a big, it's a big decision. And then for our sellers, you know, I, I don't know what your uh, policy is on language, but we work our asses off for our sellers. We, um, you know, if we need to edit that out, let me know. <laughs> Otherwise, asses is, you know, that, asses is totally fine. You, you, okay, you can, cool. uh, you can yeah. ratchet it up a bit if you want. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. We, 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 we put our heart and soul into, into every listing that we take on. And again, that's, that's one of the reasons that we, we do, I think probably more upfront work before we take on a listing to make sure that, like I said, it's something that we feel we would want to own ourselves and of course, to make sure that it's something we think we're going to be able to sell as opposed to, you know, maybe saying, oh, yeah, sure, we can sell your business just to get a listing and, you know, try and have as many listings as possible and not really care which one of them closes and which one doesn't because it's something, you know, you throw enough against the wall, something will stick. That's yep. not our philosophy. We want to work because, like I said, we work our asses off. So we pick yep. and choose the the listings that we feel strongly and passionately about and then we work tirelessly to get the best offer the best terms and again provide the best experience both for the buyers and for the sellers 
So we work what, very hard at that. What would be the range of sites that you would work aimed or target to sell in terms of overall valuation? Our, our sweet spot is between two and $10 million in valuation. Um, if, uh, if a business is worth more than that, we have an investment banking partner that we bring into those deals up in the, you know, 30, 50, hundred million dollar range. So we can go up to 300 million with our investment banking partner. Mm -hmm. And then we're, we're willing to look at businesses below that. We, we probably wouldn't look at a business that was worth less than four or 500,000, but we're willing to look at it. And if it's, if it's a a special business um, or, you know, there's, there's a good reason that, that we think it makes sense, then we, we will take on smaller listings as well. But our, our sweet spot is two to 10 million valuation. And are most of those deals uh, or most of those buyers financial buyers versus strategic buyers? Most. Well, let me let me put this another way. All buyers are financial buyers, except for <laughs> in the special case where they have a strategic interest in the business in addition to the finances. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Well, very interesting, Dustin. I appreciate you coming on and sharing a little bit about how to value, how to exit, and also how to invest in SaaS businesses specifically. Learned a lot on this episode. Uh, we'll leave links to everything that you have in the show notes, including your company, Digital Acquisitions. Bid you a farewell in uh, hopefully sunny Seattle. I'm not sure that <laughs> it not is. It's my beautiful breath. today. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. All right, there's a ton of knowledge in this episode. I personally didn't even really realize how things are valued, and I've sold an online business. Yeah, let's talk real quick about that. So we've both sold businesses in the past. Would you consider your dropshipping store SaaS? No. I would say not. It would be – that's a sales store. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it was semi-passive, as in things were set up with a lot of SaaS products. Ironically, I would – I remember – for that store specifically, not only did I have the web hosting through Shopify, which is technically SaaS, uh, I had things like, it's called Aftership, where when I would plug in the tracking number for a product that was shipped out, this software as a service, which would charge me, you know, a very small amount, but it would add up, you know, with the number of products I would ship, that would automatically basically just go through like UPS and FedEx's site to see if there's any updates and send out automatic emails and text messages to my customers so they would know mm-hmm. where the product was. So I had all these little things that I had signed up for personally just to run the business and it made my business so much smoother. You know, I, I had a mm-hmm. review app as well. That was a software as a service. So many things. So what you had said in the intro really hit home when I thought about it. Uh, but as far as yeah. my store as a dropshipping store is e-commerce, it's definitely a physical products business more than, and it's definitely not a software as a service business. What valuation were you able to sell that at? I got it for 27x monthly revenue, which is about two point about two years. Yeah, two and a half. Yeah, two two years and three months. A two point two, you know, two x monthly. No, no sorry, just call it, Yeah, let's call it two. Just call it two years, basically, for simplicity. A little bit more than two years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's just top line revenue. No, no, that was profit. Profit. Okay, so there's such a big difference in getting top line revenue and profit. And I'm wondering where, what categories really get which, but in drop shipping, is that, is that very standard? Yeah. And it's because I, I think the biggest difference between what type of businesses would get top line revenue versus net profit is just mm-hmm. depending on 
how like like how much it costs to run the business. So, for example, if you have a software business and you know you're not shipping physical products, you're not paying you know you're not paying for the shipping itself, you're not paying for the products itself. It's all digital. Your your revenue and your net profits might be very similar. You know, like your monthly expenses are pretty low. But with physical products business, especially dropshipping, our margins might only be twenty percent. So eighty percent of that that you know of our revenue right there is just to the cost of goods. So with SkySig, the company that you sold, how do they value it? Yeah, we got a four times revenue multiple, which in hindsight was great. Uh, I think we got yeah, a revenue amazing. multiple. We're, we were also a, a physical product business. Uh, there was a tech element. And we also own our, our own manufacturing, so we're vertically integrated. So I think there's a, a multiplier effect there. And also we were we had a strategic buyer. So we learned about strategic buyers in this episode. We had a strategic buyer, which happened to be a, a tobacco company that was a U.S. tobacco company and wanted to go international. They've been a domestic company for 300 years. They wanted to expand internationally. Uh, and we were a great a great fit for them to do that. And what I learned about that acquisition is actually when you're dealing with public companies, which is which what Laurie Lord was, it's a whole another ball game and and how they value a company because a public company can acquire a company, make a single headline, and their stock can appreciate off that headline far far more than they lay out to acquire you. So sometimes I think when you deal with public companies, you can get. A, a massive uh, multiplier effect. I think you, you see this also in, say, like Facebook when they acquired WhatsApp for $19 billion even before WhatsApp ever had revenues, right? So you do hear of these, these insane valuations uh, in certain companies when you get a strategic buyer in place. Yeah, I definitely see that. And it was nice getting kind of an explanation on why that is because sometimes we see these companies get bought for way more than they're worth, especially these internet startups that you know, literally have zero revenue or they're just losing money. I mean, YouTube got bought for a lot of money and it was losing, you know, $30,000 a day or something when they got bought. Right. So a lot of times, yeah, you're, you're right. The, these companies are acquired by companies that can see another benefit, you know, whether it's the user base, whether it's the technology or it's the, you know, it's just, it's just something that has very little to do with actual profits. Johnny, do you know what the number one search engine in the world is? I mean, please tell me it's Google because it's definitely the best. It's, it's Google. I knew you knew that. But okay. how about number two? Do you know what the number two search engine in the world is? So I think I only know this because it's all, like auto-installed on Windows machines. I think it's Bing. It's not Bing. No. What is you it? want another guess? You want me to tell you? Um, it's, you it's, it's YouTube, buddy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> that isn't is it, true. It's kind of crazy because people don't think about that, but... It's it's pretty insane the all the this what what Google owns because Google owns YouTube but yeah it proved to be a great acquisition for him and I think WhatsApp might prove to be a great acquisition for Facebook as well as yeah. crazy as it sounds I I almost feel like these companies are taking a big risk by becoming bigger and bigger and making these acquisitions because they're just asking for an anti monopoly suit <laughs> yeah and and they're and they're they're certainly not being treated nicely by the media and public anymore. I mean, it seems like the bigger you get, the more hate you get from from everybody, Yeah, for, for better or worse. I mean, there's obviously some bad things going on with some of these big companies, but I don't. I wouldn't want that much attention, that's for sure. Yeah, that, that almost kind of goes back to you know, us kind of as you know, smaller fish, right? We're not these you know, billion-dollar companies, but 
I think there's two ways to go about it. Whether you're building a company or you're buying a company, you can either just think about profit and your bottom line profits, or you can just think about top line growth or user acquisition. For me, I've always been a profit guy. You know, I would look at my store and say, okay, you know, I don't really care how much revenue I can get you know, in the long run. I just, you know, or um, how many users I have. I, I just care about what, what I actually have left over because it was really just me. You know, I had some freelancers working for me, but really it's just, you know, my business. So whatever money I have left over every month is what I can have. While I've also met people who built businesses that never made money and they're bought their goal. And I think a lot of startups are like this is just to have as many users as possible. And they, they figure someone will end up buying it because they will see some need for it. Even though like in the meantime, they've never, they never thought of how to monetize it. It's a scary word out there, Johnny. It really is. It's, it's either swing for the fences or you try to build something that, that is, truly sustainable. But in the case of, of the latter, trying to build something su- truly sustainable, you really have to take a look at what field you're getting into and what you're building. We just have gone through this with this uh, delivery company, uh, delivery software company that we bought in 2014. And we bought it, it was doing about $25,000 a month in revenue, reoccurring revenue, MRR to this episode. Uh, and we grew that company to over 350000 a month MRR, profitable every single month, great business. And just in the last, that, that was over the course of five years, just in the last year, every single month we're getting knocked down at the knees. DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, all these mega competitors, we've never found a buyer for the business. And every month our, our sales seem to be declining and our, our clients that use our product, it is a SaaS product, are declining. And it's, it's almost sad in a sense that you, know, you can put six or seven years into building a business what you think is the right way, building a profitable business good earnings, uh, lean operations. And then tech comes through and just with deep, deep pockets like DoorDash or any or Uber Eats and just annihilates you and your clients. And there's, you know, we should be able to pivot and find an out, but it's really, really challenging. And I think that's a scary thing for a lot of entrepreneurs now. It's almost a game of who's got the deepest connections and the deepest product and can build the craziest business that might not ever be profitable. Look at all these companies going public right now that say we may never be profitable. Uber and WeWork and you know there's there's been probably six this year that have gone public and said that they might not ever be profitable. So it can be scary out there. You can put in a lot of time, build something that's great and um and ultimately never walk away with with two nickels to rub together. Yeah, and that really sucks, man. Like it's because I could see from a business owner or as an investor's point of view, you've seen it's growing, it's profitable, and you're like, all right, well, we'll be doing everything right. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, there's if there's no, if you're not, you know, if you're not the big hitter, as you said, you can get knocked out. And That's right. It almost, I mean, to be honest, I have so I have a friend right now, Chris, who is looking at buying businesses, and he's looking at it, saying, well, the stock market's overvalued, you know, uh, real estate's overvalued. What can I invest my money in? And he's been looking at buying businesses and and he's like, wow, the returns on these are insane. You can grow the business. You can get even more. And he's absolutely right. But there's, you know, it's at the same time, you know, there's that risk of it either just going downhill for no reason. There's a time investment of, you know, actually building the the business or running the business. So it's tricky. I I think, you know, it's high risk, high reward, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Matt, I learned a lot on this episode. Did you, Johnny? Are there any, yeah. any major takeaways outside of what we already discussed? Yeah, a ton. I mean, one thing that surprised both of us is the concept of leaving a bit of meat on the bone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it did. It absolutely did. I, I've actually heard of this with uh, house and apartment renovations. Not, not, not really house renovations, but uh, definitely you know big apartment building renovations where a company will come in, buy you know a really you know kind of crappy house. I mean apartment complex that's in, mm-hmm. let's say a C level neighborhood, so pretty you know you know crappy neighborhood, and they will turn it into. I mean you can't really turn it into like a B class neighborhood, but you can turn it into more of like a B class building, right? Just you know modernize it, fix it up a bit, you know. Um, you know, fix up the outside. Uh, you know, change the roof, renovate some of the 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 actual apartments. But the interview I heard, the guy said, "Well, we're not going to renovate all the rooms because then what's the next guy going to do when he buys it from us in five years? Right. So we're just going to renovate seventy percent of the rooms. We're going to leave thirty percent unrenovated. So when they come in, they can see very easily what they can do to bring it. You know, bring this place uh, some more profit." And I think that's mm-hmm. the same with business, where if everything's a hundred percent, you know, maximized and monetized, someone's going to buy the business for, let's say, two, you know, x annual returns or four x annual returns, and they're like, well, it's going to take me two years of hoping this, you know, two or four years of hoping this doesn't explode on me for mm-hmm. me to get my money back. But if they see an opportunity, they're like, well, I can shave that time in half, and then when I sell it, I can sell it for more, so then I can really double my money. Yeah, and I think a lot of us out there that have had businesses have thought about this conceptually after the fact. Like we've gone and had a discussion about selling the business and then it prompted us to say, oh, by the way, you know, we haven't done this yet. You can still do this. But in the case of actually planning around that, I think it's different. Um, For instance, someone out there might be very good at SEO and organic search traffic. They could build an entire business like that purposely to not do any paid ads just to dominate SEO and organic traffic for that category or for that niche and then go to a buyer and say, we haven't even, we've we've grown the company to this much revenue off this traffic. We haven't even done paid search yet, paid ads. That should give you another, you know, 3X growth right there to somebody that's disciplined in in that uh, marketing field. So a lot there. And then I also like just distinguishing, you know, the difference in, in ARR, MRR and and online sales because I think that gets fuzzy and especially a lot of, of these hybrid style businesses today where you have a subscriptions component, you have a sales component, you have, uh, you know, reports and data component, you have all these different layers of revenue. And that sometimes it gets confusing when people are talking about MRR and ARR. But just to, to clarify, monthly reoccurring revenue will be basically strictly subscription revenue. And pretty much everything else will be sales. Did we ever figure out if it was reoccurring or recurring? <laughs> so I've actually... I look back at some of my writing. I always write reoccurring with an O, but more and more frequently I see it recurring. And I think it's just because people are lazy and don't want that extra syllable. <laughs> well, as long as they want the reoccurring money, then I guess it's it's worth it. I want the reoccurring. It sounds better. Reoccurring. Yeah. Give me that reoccurring. Yeah. So actually on the on the last point we had just talked about, the reason why it was so easy for me to find a buyer for my first drop a shipping store was because the website was non-mobile responsive. And mm. this was, you know, kind of the, during that transition period. I think I sold it in 2000, 2016 or 2000, 2000, end of 2015. 
And at this point, pretty much every website or uh, at least online you know, e-commerce store was mobile responsive. More and more people were buying things on their phone. But I had, you know, did so much custom code on my Shopify theme that it was going to be a pain in the butt to switch over. So I just never did it. But from the, you know, buyer's point of view, he saw that and he was like, oh man, I can come in, you know, with my, you know, my team or my, my webmaster and just, you know, very easily switch this over. I might even be able to double my sales. And for him, he probably looked at me like I was an idiot. From my side, I was like, I'm just lazy. I know I should do it. <laughs> so, yeah. Know, and it just really worked out for both people. It's funny, Johnny. I think this is a generational thing because I'm, I'm the same. We're, I think we're Web 2.0 guys at heart. And we, we think of web and domain first. Um, but, but a lot of people now when they're building, you know, they're building online businesses, they're going straight to the app. They're not even building a web presence. Um, I have a guy that's a friend that's actually building uh, online arcade called Winner Winner. And I'm like, I was thinking of winnerwinner.com, this great online arcade. He's going straight to the app. And the guy that owns winnerwinner.com wants to sell him the domain for $10,000. I said, absolutely buy that. Like, you, you need that domain. You need that web presence. You need the opportunity to build out the web. And he's like, I asked. 10 people and nine out of 10 said, just buy, just do the app. Don't even worry about the web. I'm like, that's to me, that sounds crazy. Cause I'm a web guy, I'm a web to Oga. It's where I got started, but it seems like more and more now people are going straight to straight to an app. Yeah. You, and you're definitely right about that because there's so many, you know, big websites or apps that their website is literally just a, a landing page that says download the app here. Candy and, crush, man. Yeah. Candy crush. It's like a billion dollar business and they don't need, they don't have a website. It's just an app. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, I guess like, why do you really need it? Right. I mean, everyone has a phone, fewer and fewer people are using their laptops or personal computers at home. I mean, I, I'm very curious what the web traffic is for Facebook, which used to be 100%, you know, uh, home desktop or laptop based. Now, I'm willing to bet more than half the traffic is coming from mobile. Oh, I bet, man. I bet. I only don't have the Facebook app on my phone because I just burn way too much productive time on that, stocks, Instagram, all all the other applications on my phone. I just spend a lot of wasteful time on them. So I, I purposely don't have the apps on my phone, but I don't think that's consistent with the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, what's actually funny is I somebody told me about a dating app, like a Tinder, but like a Eastern European version called Badu or something. So I went, you know, to badu.com, tried to navigate their website, and I thought, oh, this is a piece of crap. Why did anyone tell me to use this? <laughs> and it wasn't until probably six months later that I realized they have an app, and their app's really good. They basically just copied Tinder. Uh, the the sites, the, the actual site sucks. It's like like a crappier version of Tinder. So I, I uh, uninstalled it. But what I realized is they probably built that web app or the, the website 10 years ago, and they just never bothered to update it because everyone uses the app. Wow. Jeez. It'll be amazing to look back on this episode in 5, 10 years and see what's happening with online businesses, applications, business models, valuations. I think valuations for tech are just going to keep getting crazier and crazier, my friend. Yeah, I, I agree. So, so what are your thoughts? Would you buy a SaaS business? In my experience, running a SaaS business requires such a distinct skill set for whatever that category is. You know, SaaS is a massive, massive category, but you can get into every type of subcategory within SaaS. So it would have to be something that I 
had a team that was turnkey and ready to go to take that on. We have looked at acquiring SaaS businesses in the past, but it's when I've had an existing business or existing project uh, with a team that could absorb that project. For me, just to take something over myself, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a right fit for me at this point in my life. But uh, I absolutely see the opportunity. But I, I I've worked in SaaS businesses, I've built SaaS businesses, and I know that you need to be specialized in, in what you're acquiring um, or have a team to do so. So I would definitely put a lot of thought into it um, and make sure it's the right fit. How about you, Johnny? I agree. I, th- I think on one hand, either whether you build or you buy a SaaS business, it's a great way to have you know, just monthly or, or yearly recurring revenue. And, and we love having multiple sources of income. But at the same time, unless you, you have the tech skills or you have the team, like you mentioned, to be able to run it, to not only you know maintain it and make sure it doesn't break, but also to grow it. Because if anything that doesn't grow eventually dies. And I, I just cannot see myself taking on someone else's project and having the the patience or the skills to be able to grow it. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it'd be anything, if I had the patience or the skills, I would have just built it myself. Absolutely. Well, if any of the people out there in the Boss Lounge have any experiences acquiring SaaS businesses. We've also had on Empire Flippers in the past, a great marketplace to buy and sell businesses, including SaaS businesses. Uh, Let us know. Let us know your experience. We'd like to hear more about this from the individual um, and small business level. So feel free to share it with us in the Boss Lounge. Email it to us or come out to the iLab Summit. Uh, We'll be talking a lot more about this category out there September 28th. Yeah, we actually have a speaker that is going to be talking about buying businesses. And the reason why we have it is because even though it's not Sam and I's forte, because you know part of us we're, we're lazy, we're, we're busy, <laughs> we're doing other things, but it's a business that people. I mean, it's a type of income that people make work. So just because it's not for Sam and I, and this is for all investments, just because Sam and I aren't personally going to invest in it right now, it doesn't mean it's not a good investment for some people. So one hundred percent. You know, there are people out there who are killing it and they're listening to this thinking, Johnny, Sam, you guys are idiots. This is, you know, this is the payday. And here's a a, a very simple kind of math uh, way to look at it. If you buy a business, let's say for $100,000 because, you know, it's making, you know, uh, uh, whatever, how much per month, let's say, you know, $3,000 a month in profit or something. And you see an opportunity to increase that level. So instead of making three thousand a month, you can increase it to five thousand a month. You know, let's say you know you redo the website, you tweak the the paid ads, you add SEO to it, whatever it is. If you can increase your income from you know three thousand to five thousand, not only do you have that monthly cash flow increase, but also that business is now worth a lot more money. So when you go to sell it, not only do you get your full hundred thousand dollars back, you actually get the new multiple. So now that business is probably worth $180,000 or maybe even $200,000. So you get all that cash flow and double your money back in some cases, if you can double the monthly profit. That's a good investment. Absolutely. That's a good investment. And that's exactly what these private equity companies and family offices are doing at the larger level. They're buying a SaaS business for five or 10 or $20 million. They know that they can double revenues and get you know, two or three times their money out in a few years. And if they know they can do that and they have a team to support that, that's a damn good investment. Yeah, because what else can we can we invest in and double our money? And yeah. while collecting that monthly profit, that's insane. 
And and yeah, remember that in, in a lot of cases, the the people that are buying the SaaS business to begin with have a buyer lined up on the other side. They know when they take this and turn it into something a little bit better, add value, they can they can sell it to somebody waiting in line. And we heard the same concept as you already alluded to, Johnny, uh, on the Omar Khan episode back talking about cap rates. That a lot of times his company and other companies doing real estate, they'll acquire a building. They'll leave, quote unquote, meat on the bone after they add some value. And then they already have buyers that are ready to go that know that they'll they'll acquire it from them and add that last bit of value add, stabilize the um, the project and and keep ripping the cash flow. So it's a whole big business network out there. Um, and a lot of times when you see these acquisitions happen, you know, that's because they have a plan for two or three years to exit to someone further along down the line. I love it. It's just another reminder how much money there is to be made out there, how many different alternative investment ideas there are out there. So I'm so happy that we have this podcast, that we're able to get on these great guests and we're able to explore and and learn from everyone. And a big reason why we're able to get these guests is because you guys keep leaving these great five-star reviews of the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else. So big thank you for doing that. Please continue to do that. And if you guys want to learn more about what is currently working and what we're all invested in and to be able to kind of deep dive, meet the other listeners, the other uh, investors, including some very high level people, but also people just starting out, come out to LA, come to the, the Invest Like a Boss Summit. It's going to be investedlikeaboss.com slash summit for all the info. And I guarantee it's going to be a great day. Looking forward to it, Johnny. Thank you to all the listeners for the great reviews and your support over the years of this podcast. And we'll keep them coming. Great talking to you, Sam, as always. And thanks again to our sponsor for this week, Diversity Fund. You can check them out, diversityfund.com. See you guys next week. Nice. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.